Welcome to the Leadership Mindset, the podcast where we uncover the hidden gems of sales and business leadership. In each episode, our goal is to bring you up close and personal with the world's most accomplished business leaders. We explore their experiences, motivations, inspirations, and the challenges they've conquered on their way to the top. Grab a coffee and enjoy the conversation with today's guest, Phil Codd. Phil, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for inviting me. It's exciting to do podcasts at, at this time of the day. <laughs> yeah, my, my, my pleasure, Phil. Tell me, I, I'm, I think you're from Dublin, am I right? Where did you grow up in Dublin? Yeah, I'm Dublin originally, but we all got up lock, stock and barrel in the 60s and, and moved to London. So my formative years were in London and, and my, my education was there up until I was about 18. I, hence, I've got that kind of funny accent. And, and I did all that usual thing of going backwards and forwards from England back to Ireland to see relatives and things like that. So it was that kind of traditional, almost first generation. Irish upbringing in an Irish community in London. I think there's a lot of people that would recognize that either having, if they were born in the UK and came home or as we did, we moved across. And it was, I was the only one that came back home, which was interesting as well. I was keen to get into the computer uh, business and, and into the industry. And it was fairly, it was fairly immature in those days. And certainly the computer industry in Ireland was virtually non-existent. IBM was here, Digital was here down in Galway. There were shoots of small uh, hardware resellers. There were a couple of software games in town. Kindle would have been one of those going back in the banking days, but it was very much an immature time. And so I started working in London. Unfortunately, the company I worked for, we got a gig, I think we term it today, but we got a very important project for the Bank of Ireland and it was in the trustee department of the Bank of Ireland so if anyone uh, is out there works in trustee high and therefore I had to come home and it was fantastic because I I got to be in the computer business in the computer industry in Dublin at the time and as I said it was certainly maturing I was looking for a job at the time in Dublin it wasn't anything too much I was back to London for another few years and then eventually uh, the battle of the relational databases appeared. And there were companies like Ingress, Sybase, Oracle, well, the, and Infermix were the big players. And I got a, a role with, with Ingress in London. And about three months later, they decided to open an office here. So I was on the boat immediately. And that's, that was what the change for me was in 1990, when Ingress first opened here. And that was the start of, I, I suppose, my real yeah. career in Ireland. You said a couple of things I wanted to just touch on. You said with that job with the Bank of Ireland, you, you said I was I was it was an opportunity to come home. But that's interesting because you spent the formative years up to eighteen, I think you said, in London. Why did you call Ireland home at that stage? You're from where you're from, as were my 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 parents. Obviously, my father was from Dublin. My mother was from Waterford. It it was home to them at the same time and the amount of time that you come back and then the circle of friends that you tend to to be with even in the teenage years there were the there were the, uh, the, the O'Donoghue's there were the the Morans although they were called Morans over there and so it was just that nat- natural place uh, to be and I was delighted to be home and 
I have to say, being home for now the last 30-something years, it's been very good to me. And mm. it was always going to be home. Mm. I'm just curious to know what it was like growing up there because I moved to UK for work for many years, but I moved there when I was 22, I think it was. So it's a bit different when you go to a place as an adult. And <laughs> what do you recall in terms of what it felt like growing up in, in London? Because it, it was hugely cosmopolitan. It was hugely multiracial at the time. And, you know, it continued to be. And you could contrast that directly with Dublin at that stage. It was chalk and cheese. Obviously, there were a lot of things that were available in London, Europe in general, that, that weren't necessarily available here. It, it was never a surprise when somebody said, oh, I'm leaving Ireland, I'm going to, I'm going to London. I'm going to the very big smoke. And I'm going to embrace it. And so many people did and have and continue to do so because it, it was very different. There was a transportation system that really worked well and continues to do so. I have to say, when I go back to London, the tube system works phenomenally well. It's a shame we don't have one in Dublin. There was that, there was the vibrancy of theatre and cinema and just the size of everything. And I think for me, the, the beauty that I've enjoyed, that we all give out about the traffic in Dublin and the congestion, but actually it's nothing near like you get in big major cities across Europe. And certainly wasn't something that I missed. I I, I don't miss having to go to work Oof. on the tube. Oof. And I was watching a video the other day of uh, of the the mass transportation system in Japan, and just the way they get people into their into their trains there is horrific. And London was was almost like they didn't quite have the people that were pushing you on with big brooms. Yeah. So I think they, they were the stark differences. And my wife and I would discuss these things. It, it, it's almost with a jealousy that she says, we never had those when we were growing up. And we did. We had four TV channels constantly available. Whereas you only had those if you were on the East Coast and you only probably had one or two. So it was just all of those things. Yeah. But the culturally, the differences were also stark. And I think we see it even more now with, with I, personally, when I look at the... England, when I'm in England now, I think they're struggling with their identity a little bit. Whereas I think Ireland over the last hundred years had struggled with its identity and now has a very strong identity, not just in Ireland, but also globally. It's a very clear identity that the people also want to gravitate towards. So I think those were the differences that I saw as well. If I went to school with you and knew you as a teenager, how would I describe, how would I describe you to others? Oh, that's an interesting one. It was it was generally in trouble, not bad trouble. Just if there was an opening uh, to to do get into a little bit of development, then I was probably at the for forefront or moving towards it. I did find that I remember a teacher wrote something along the lines of my my Python. It says something like Cod must learn that his Pythonist humor won't carry him through life. Now, I think I've proven him wrong, actually, but I understood what he said at the time. Certainly, I, was, I, wasn't, the, I wasn't the shy kid hanging back, although I did. Yeah, and I said I wanted to get into the computer industry at that stage. Mm. So I suppose today I would be considered somewhat of a nerd. Mm. But again, ner nerds have become very fashionable and popular. But I wasn't that your archetypical nerd. I was the one that was really looking for the fun, looking for the angle. And as I say, if there was... A friendly devilment, I, and I, I'm not suggesting that I was, I was 
running around as a, as an errant teenager, but it was always the fun side of it. Mm. In terms of sales, talk to me about your career track through sales. As I said, I started in, in the computer industry and I, I, I went to college to learn how to write code. Mm. I was a trainee codal programmer back in the day and I was okay at it and uh, it, it all moved on along with the technology. But it was really when I got involved with product companies and I mentioned um, a company called Ingress there uh, earlier on um, and I, I, I'd gone to work with them. Um, it was then I, I discovered I could use that technical knowledge as as a as a sales talent, and I think I recognise it now today when I meet lots of technical people who are in sales. They you tend to try and overcome any sales objection with with a technical weapon, and you get down into the minutiae detail. And I recognise myself in those uh, moments, mm. but certainly I quickly learned the the art of sales. And for me, it was always about building that that rapport and that relationship with the people. And when I first started off, it was really, as I said, developing it with my technical knowledge. I thought this was the way I could build rapport. I did because I'd be selling tech, technical things to technical people. So you were able to build a rapport on that level. And then as you developed into that and realized that actually there are other people that you need to talk to. And they aren't really interested in, in, in technical knowledge. They may well be interested in something you can do for their business. But it still came back to that core principle of you've got to be able to build rapport. Mm. And it explained we've actually been very successful over the last 15 years in growing our business. And when I get other countries visiting us, which they do frequently, to see what, well, what's that secret source, I explain to them that we work in, a, in quite a small village called Ireland. And if I want to meet with the COO of a particular company, I really just have to figure out how I'm related to that person, whether I'm his, who his brother's cousin's aunt is. And that's the person I just need to be able to navigate that. And they don't have that luxury. Mm. And, and it is a luxury that we have. And it's something we often forget how luxurious it is to be able to talk to so many people in, at, at various levels in an organization. But it's still about that rapport. And I suppose it's therefore, without abusing that, how you can add value because you can't just be pals. Although like, over the years, I've made many friends, obviously through yes. that route, but you've still got to come back to that fundamental point, which is, so how are we going to conduct business together? Yeah. Because that's ultimately, I'm hoping I've got something that you need. Yes. I hope that you'll help me understand better and therefore we'll build our commercial relationships through that way. Yeah. I was actually reminded that very recently there's a networking group called Venture Networks in Dublin. There's a few chapters around. I was at one of their meetings last week, seven o'clock on a Thursday morning. That's when it starts and it's finished by 8.30, ready, ready to start the real day. But what was interesting to me is they have this process whereby somebody in the group, if I were there, I'd go, this is the person I want to reach. And I'd name them. And everybody else in the room is opening up their LinkedIn to see how they're connected to that person. And, yeah. and you're right, it's amazing. And I think it's something we, I certainly had discounted the power of that because whether it's in a formal group like that or it's in a boxing, Aviva, or it's on a golf course, I think there is a, 
if you work it, there is a, a, a way in and it's the personal relationship side. Yeah, interesting. Apart from the minor mischief making when you were younger, was there anything that you can recall that when you look back, it, it indicated to a role in business, in sales, in, in, in who you are today? Yeah, there's probably a few little traits in there. A friend of mine, Ken, who was, his name was Neil Tracy, he, he sold newspapers after school. And I wanted to do that too, because it, again, there was a certain devilment to it. It was great fun, but actually I used to do it with him and sometimes I'd do it instead of him. And I just found that to be great fun because you were meeting members of the public and you were trying to sell their, your evening papers to them, whether they wanted one or not. And I just remember the, the buzz that you'd got from maybe getting rid of all your newspapers on that evening. Mm. And then I moved into a men's and women's clothing manufacturer who had a whole load of outlets over, over London. And that was hard, fast selling in retail. So that was selling shirts and ties and all that kind of good stuff. And again, the buzz of selling something, of meeting somebody and asking them what they need and being able to do that and close the deal, take them to the till. And, and then if they came back again, you'd already built, started to build a bit of a rapport with them. And I think, so from those little seeds, I could tell that it was a natural place for me to live in the world of selling, in the world of hey. conversation with people, and in the world of building that relationship, no matter how small a moment you have. And I was reminded recently that you know, whenever we interact with anybody, it's, there's always a, it's either a positive or a negative experience. It's, no, it's never neutral. And if you go into a, a shop to buy a newspaper, and the person behind the counter throws the newspaper and you changes you. You've had a negative experience and you're unlikely to go in there. But if you've gone in there and you've had a little bit of chat about the weather or the rugby or whatever it is, and there's a bit of pleasantry, you actually have a very positive experience and you go away and you feel a lot more positive about it. And that happens all day long. And I find myself, I'm always reminded of that. I always look to try and make things positive for any kind of interaction, even if I'm just getting on a train to be able to thank people. And yeah. I find a lot of people think it's surprising, but just being nice to somebody. And yeah. I do this even if I get surveys. So I got my car service a few weeks ago and they sent me a, sur a survey. Now, I don't know how what their hit rate is, but I tend to answer it. I use a, a shopping, a large shopping organization to deliver my groceries yeah. and they always send me they send me their documents afterwards their surveys, surveys. Yeah. and I'll always answer it I was on a Ryanair flight last week and they sent me one and I always answer it if I can because they are genuinely asking well what did you think and I don't always have to be hugely positive but I think again it's symptomatic of wanting to build a relationship even with with that company yeah in your earlier career, who would have inspired you a lot? Oh, it was people like Mike Stonebreaker, who was the chief engineer and owner of Ingress. People like Larry Ellison, believe it or not, and what he did with the relational database and the highlight company has built up over time. And so it was very much geared to that 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 sort of technical world of uh, that that 
influenced me at, at the very early age. Mm. And then I think as time went on, and it's a bit like food. You, as a kid, you don't like eating tomatoes or you don't like eating Brussels sprouts. I still don't like eating Brussels sprouts, by the way. Over time, you change. And and I found that, again, with the sort of people that, that, that would influence. You, I tended to look at political figures that were around at the time. There were positives and negatives. I do remember Margaret Thatcher's years. Now, she was influential on me, but certainly in a negative way. But I'd also, I, it, it was interesting to see Bertie Ahern come back into the frame in the last couple of months, because fortunately I, I'd met Bertie Ahern a few times and I found him to be very, very charming, very engaging, and actually a very smart individual. And irrespective of your politics, I just, I just thought he was, he was an interesting character to listen to and understand and see where he was coming from. Mm. That's interesting because I find, whether you agree with me or not, I find people can be very black and white about individuals in the public eye, that they lack a lot of nuance, whether it's the likes of Bertie or maybe somebody like Elon Musk. It's, it's hate that guy. And rather than stand back and go, there's some things he did or she did and I'm not too thrilled about, but I admire this. I can admire their achievements. I may not like them as an individual or I may have some thoughts or opinions, but it's almost like we, we, we take individuals and they have to go in one box or another. And I always find that unfortunate that, that we're, as individuals, we're way more complex than that. And yeah. I always think it's a shame because then we lose the ability to see the good at others. Yeah, that's true. I, I just popped into my head. It's quite bizarre, but Ronald Reagan just popped into my head. The, the, the time that he came to, to Ireland, the first time he came and, and he, he went to uh, Limerick, I was driving to Shannon de the day that the CIA turned up. And I remember driving along this very quiet barren road and there was black car with black windows after black car with black windows. See them coming out of the hook. I don't know how many of these things there were. So I, it, it just resonated with me. Now, was he the best president in, of, of America? Who knows? And people have views of that. But you have to hand it to him that he, again, he was charismatic. He had charm. He was statesmanlike in, in many ways. And he was an actor. Mm. And you've got to say, wow, for somebody to go from being an actor to becoming president of America, you must have something. It's, mm. It can't just be a few people in, in high places. Mm. Did he make lots of mistakes along the way? Yes, of course he did. And as he got older, you could see that he had lots of failings. But... There were certain qualities that you could look at him and go, do you know what? He wasn't the worst of them. Yeah. And I think you could say that about everybody, not just the presidents, but if you're looking at them, it's regardless. It depends on your perspective, but you'll find somebody who goes, I don't like that. I don't. And, and I think we, as, as a society, we need to get much more nuanced. It drives me crazy. When people are put in boxes, just black and white, you're good or bad, left or right, yeah. right or wrong. Yeah, yeah. Tell me, in what you're doing currently, Phil, what's giving you the greatest sense of accomplishment? I've been with this company for 15 years, and that surprises me every time I say it, because prior to that, I'd only ever worked with companies for about three to four years. Yeah. That was my max. That was my tolerance level. And when I joined Explio, it, it was a different sort of company. It was very small. I think it was about 40 people at that stage. Today, we have over 
150 people in Ireland. So there's been tremendous growth in the business. And after that first three or four years, I found myself really sucked into it because we were growing, we were doing well, and we were creating value to the company as well as to customers. And we were also creating new business areas. And we were creating we were creating new services to to clients. And also we were employing people and, and we were giving people careers in in the IT industry, which not everyone has a career. People there's lots of people working in it do they have a career. So we were able to create careers. And then each year that that there's a challenge and there's a challenge. How do we address the balance of men and women? How do we become a much more diverse organization? And again, if I go back 15 years ago, we were pretty diverse. We had two religions. And today, we've got people from about 34 different countries working for us in Ireland. And we are slowly addressing the, the gender balance. We were at 20, low 20s. We're at about 32, 33. So we're not quite at the, the halfway point, but we're definitely moving there. And so there are business challenges that are emerging almost daily as time goes on. It, and it's being able to address those, to help people address those, to create an organization where, there's, where there is fairness, where there's opportunity, where there's innovation, and people are empowered. And I, I, I do know that a lot of our staff feel they're empowered here. And I often say that as adults, we make big decisions. We go and buy a property or make some sort of investment in a property. That's a big decision. We may go and buy something very expensive, like a Harley Davidson, for example, or, or an expensive car, or we'll take a lifetime partner. They're big decisions that we take. So when you come to work, the decisions you have to make are pretty small generally, and you should be able to make them yourself. And you should be mature enough to know that maybe I'd, li I'd like to share my decision before making it. But I think that empowerment is something that, that I've really enjoyed. So each year, there's a not really a layer of the onion that we peel, but we, it's that layer of value that we're adding to the company overall. And so I'm very proud of the fact that in the Explio group, which is 17,000 people and 35 countries spread around the place, that the Irish business is held up as the poster child. And that's very good for me, but more, it's very good for the people that are with me. Mm -hmm. And I've been blessed that I've got a team that's worked with me for many years. I'd love to say it's all about me, but it, it clearly isn't. Mm. There is a bigger decision to be made than buying a Harley Davidson, and that's selling it. <laughs> have you sold your Harley Davidson? I have, yeah. Oh, Paul. I know, I know. And did you put the money in an account so you could buy another one? I, I, I haven't bought another Harley. I did replace it with another motorbike, and I'm afraid to tell you because I think you'll uh, think less of me. In fact, I was in a friend's house recently. There was some guys in doing some work and they saw me and I had the leather jacket on, which it's a Harley leather jacket. And the guy goes, oh, so you ride Harley. He was all excited. And he says, what model do you have? And I said, just sold it. And then, of course, he's thinking, what did you replace it with? And I said, it's a BMW K1600. And I <laughs> he just looked at me like I was a piece of dirt. It just walked in off the street. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful bike. It is a beautiful um, bike. It is. It's no Harley. It's different, and I. It's one of the. It's funny, and, and there, I, there's a sales lesson in this. I think somewhere as well. 
in that I, I had a, the whys and wheres for us why I changed really doesn't matter. The, 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 there was nothing wrong with the Harley, but I fancied a change. And I saw this bike and it just kept talking to me and kept talking to me. And I wanted to do some touring. The Harley was the one that I had wasn't really good for touring at all. And it just didn't start in the winter and it was cold, blah, blah, blah. But I went and just bought it, went saw it. It was only two years old and very little mileage on it. Bought it there and then and had to pick it up a few weeks later. Came, picked it up and instant regret. If I had test driven the bike, I wouldn't have bought it. It just took me a while to get used to it. It was very different. And that in, that what that felt like was, this is wrong. And of course, that's not true. It was just, I wasn't used to it. And once I got used to it, which took me a while, I love it. I have to say this, there's aspects to it that lead, literally would leave the Harley in the dirt that says doesn't sound, doesn't look like a Harley. But my, my point is more on the sometimes we avoid things because they don't feel comfortable when that's the wrong decision. And sometimes we need to give things time. So that was a big lesson for me in, in, in that. But yeah, BMW for now, but... <laughs> I keep getting tempted. I got an email from Harley yesterday saying, come to our open day. <laughs> oh, lordy, lordy. But I wanted to ask you, when you think about your leadership journey or your growing into the leadership role, talk to me about some of the big lessons you learned along the way that would be of value to share with somebody starting out. Sure. We, we are running a, a management and leadership course and it starts next week, actually. And I'm, I'm just prepping some notes just to kick it off. And w one of the things about leadership and management is it's not something that we've, we've already learned. Quite often, it's something that you fall into, arrive into, or is thrust upon you, and you really haven't a clue what it is you're supposed to do. Now, there are fantastic companies out there, I know, that run leadership programs that bring people through. But you'll find that there's a huge number of companies, this one included, where the leadership has, they've acquired it over many years, and it's based on experience. And, and I think today that may not happen again, because we look to actually ensure that, that the next leaders of our businesses and the next managers of our businesses have a better understanding of what's required of them. And... I think for anyone that's looking at their next role is don't be afraid of it, but if there's any where that you can get support, help, or even just training around that, I think grab it with both arms hands because it's such an important aspect. I think people that, that decide to do an MBA, for example, at the right time of their life, probably in their early 30s, they hugely benefit from that. Excuse me. And it enables them to be a much more strategic in, in their roles. One of the other things I've learned is that mentorship is hugely important to you as that leader or manager or, or whatever it is your, your role is, and making sure that you have mentors or a mentor, which is outside of your business, probably in, in your, likely to be in your social circle, but maybe not very close. Mm. And it's somebody that you can go and talk to about some of the difficulties you encounter on a frequent basis, maybe monthly, maybe every quarter. Because I do find that when you're running something, 
it's quite a lonely life. You look to the left, you look to the right, and there's nobody there. Mm. And sometimes you find yourself having to make perhaps decisions and you've got to make them on your own. And that's not necessarily a good thing. Sometimes you have to. But if you've got mentors along with you that you can at least bounce things off, that you can at least try things out in some kind of safe way without actually doing any damage. Mm. I think certainly having a mentor, and I have a couple of people that, that I meet with reasonably frequently, and we shoot the breeze and we talk about whatever our businesses are or whatever's going on. But there's, also, there's always that one thing that you look to bring up to see, have you experienced this? Or I'm thinking of doing that. What do you think? Without betraying any confidential mm. uh, information or anything like that, but when, in just in that broad sense. Mm. And it is wonderful to hear other people that have similar problems because there's always a great relief on that. Mm. Uh, that it's not just, it's not a unique problem that you have. Right. So I definitely think to, to today, to learn as much, to read as much. We were never blessed with so many books on, on, on business and business mm. psychology and the training videos that are available yeah. on things like you and forums like this one that you can actually, you can learn from in, in maybe bite-sized chunks. Yeah. And, and I think mentoring is, is hugely important. In terms of finding a mentor, I'm curious to know, is it a formal process? Is it ad hoc? Do you go and find, seek somebody out and have a conversation with them saying, here's what I'd like our relationship to be like. Here's what I want to get out of it. Or is it more just somebody you have a connection with and you sh Okay, I don't want to say shoot the breeze, but that's too trivial. Yeah, but yeah. choose a cod and talk things out with. I, I think it's been three areas. We've built mentorship programs for people with external individuals who, who come along and say, I, I do mentoring, I do business mentorship, and we will affect the introduction. And quite often it, it might be a paid engagement even. Mm. And to get people into that, that, that way of thinking so that they could work on certain perhaps aspects immediately. Mm. And then they also get to learn what mentoring might do for them. I think that's the first one. I think the second one is, is maybe the next step up where you would seek someone else in an organization that you, perhaps you work with, you build a relationship with them and you can actually have that, that slightly more, sorry, slightly less formal relationship where you do say, look, I, could we meet up every now and again? And I, it would be great to meet up anyway, but I just, I value your advice and I value your guidance. And I've had people come to me and ask me to do that mm. for them as well. And then there's that, that really informal, as I said, somebody within perhaps your social circle or within your sort of business social circle that you do meet up and you shoot the breeze. And, and they're probably not the idea of, I want you to be my mentor it never comes up. It, it, it is just that you're in a a safe place that you feel comfortable to have conversations with that individual. And it's not really your best friend because it's not necessarily that safe. So best friends are great and they're great to share mm. secrets, but and they can keep those secrets. It's the people they tell are the ones that can't keep the secrets quite often. <laughs> True. I want to ask you, if you were Minister for Education and you could make any subject mandatory on the Leaving Cert curriculum, what would it be and why? I, I think today, given what I see with young people, I think wellness or CBT uh, for people that are dealing with 
there's a lot of anxiety out there and schools don't play a part in, in necessarily or deep part in, in, in working that. And I think there's a lot of tools that are available to people from a very young age to help them, them through that. So I think that for me would be something that I'd love to see introduced into, into schools. I also have, and this comes back to my desire to have a much more gender balanced company or companies and particularly in the IT industry. And I have two daughters and, and they both went to single sex schools in the primary school. And we did that because they're girls and we thought girls do much better when you go to single sex schools. I would abolish single sex schools today. And I would be a huge advocate of starting life as life will go on and learning how to, to mix together and to learn together and also to do subjects together. Um, and we, we learned this here very recently in a conversation we were having with, with our gender balance team. And one lady stood up and she said, I wanted to do science subjects, but we didn't do them in school. They did them in the boys' school up the road every couple of days. Uh, me and two other girls would have to leave the class we're in, walk up the street, go into the boys' school, be late into the class, into a class for the boys, sit wherever you could sit with and sat at the back. And then they had to leave early and go back. <sighs> and the huge embarrassment that they had suffered was awful. And if those two schools were combined, then everybody could have done everything. That, for me, kind of ties in with some of the, the, the anxiety that young people have when they're suddenly now faced with going to secondary school and that may be a mixed environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's quite a shell shock, I think. It, no, it is. And as you were talking through it, there was a lot coming back, a lot of scar tissue, because I went to a single sex school, CBS, and but what had happened was there was, in Kilkenny, there was CBS, was literally on one side of the street and there was presentation common where all the girls went on the other side. And when... I went into fifth year for fifth and sixth for our two final years, and sure. I was wanted to do biology. I sat in my first class of biology, and then somebody told me that there was this girl I fancied, and she had joined the chemistry class. There was four girls from the presentation used to come over across the road for chemistry class, and they were sat behind at the back row, and I, I have shame over this, <laughs> but I switched from biology to chemistry and I, I hated chem- I just chemistry I just yeah and then I did physics as well and there was I only remember one because again I fancied but this is the problem because you have this when hormones are raging and you have this opposite remember the opposite sex you fancy it's just dropped in whereas perhaps perhaps and I don't know this because I didn't have the experience perhaps if I'd grown up with it it wouldn't feel strange or it wouldn't stand out and, and get noticed. And then, yeah, I wasn't obsessing about it. So <laughs> I think you've made the case for sync for mixed sex. My kids went to mixed sex school and it was fine. So yeah, I think yeah. I'm, I'm balanced. Yeah. Did you marry one of the chemistry girls? No, I didn't. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> I can still remember her name though. <laughs> <laughs> Don't say it on radio. <laughs> no, I thought I saw her recently, but that's... <laughs> How many years? Forty years later. <laughs> That's crazy. Well, yeah, it's anyway. But so then you came back and you said wellness. Where's the line between wellness and resilience in terms of 
building character. I think one of the things that I've seen with young people going into university and college now, whereas, you know, maybe 30 years ago, not as many people did that, they have to go and do that. Not necessarily to learn the subject, which is great, but they go to, to get that resilience. And I think we can see from the early 40s as the Second World War started, when people came back from that, they weren't going to allow their kid to suffer that type of that type of war. And so they, they caused it to them. And then we moved into the, so we got the 60s and the product of the 60s, they wanted to, to improve the lot of their children. And we gradually moved into a world where we overprotect, I believe. And this is purely a personal view. I don't yeah. have any stats on this, but we do overprotect because we want to make sure that the lives of our children naturally are, are the best that they have. And I suppose they, they miss out on that, that some of that character building. If you're not allowed to jump off a wall, you're not really going to know that it's either dangerous or safe. Yeah. If, if you're not allowed to get dirt under your nails or any other body, really, then you, you're not going to know what it's to, to, to like to play out in, in, in the dirt or all these kind of things. And I think that, for me, builds a, a, some level of resilience. I think wellness is a different aspect, which is with the advent of the modern in internet and on social media, there's a huge focus on me, my perception of me, and uh, what others ultimately think of me. Yeah. And I think that's, it's probably, it has already become quite a, a dangerous level of, of that self-deprecation and self-awareness. And, and I think that's where wellness comes in. I think people, young people may feel a lot less about themselves and their self-worth the reason they should, you're 14 and you're doing great yeah. and you're well loved and you're, and you're in classrooms with lots of kids and you're having fun and learning stuff. I mean, you should feel great about yourself. And I think sadly we're seeing more yeah. young people who aren't. So I think wellness, being able to really understand, well, I am, I am a great person yeah. and actually people do like me. Yeah. And, and if people don't, that's okay because there are other people. There's millions of people out in the world. Yeah. And I think that. We're helping people to just see through that and understand that the world isn't as as bad as you might see it on Instagram or TikTok yeah. or what, whatever your poison yeah. happens to be. Yeah, it's funny. I was visiting my daughter. She's in, she's doing her third year. It's Erasmus in Malta for the year. And I went out to see her in November. And so we were going to spend a couple of days wandering around seeing the place and, and I took a camera with me, but I took a film camera with me because I'd had experience of this before where I'd take a picture of her and straight away it's shot me. And if it, <laughs> if it didn't conform to certain standards, it was deleted. And like, I'm, I'm, I'm a parent. I don't care. Just I'm, I want a picture of the occasion. I'm not looking for a perfect portrait. But it was quite interesting, the reaction when I was taken with the film, because you can't see at the back of it. And it was a frustration, but also once once she realized that she couldn't see it, it relaxed. She relaxed and was, was okay with it until the negatives okay. came back. And then it was, let me look at those. And I said, yeah, but you can't delete. You can't delete negatives the same way. We ain't cutting them up. These are for me. But it reminded me of that constant pressure. I'm so glad we didn't have that growing up 
it can't be easy. So yeah, I guess there's. Go on, sorry. But no, I but I I do think we we had pressure and we recognised it at the time, probably in different ways. But I, I do think you're right. I think oh. the the type of pressure that that exists now is different. And yeah. I think we young people need help with it, and parents struggle with how they might help because we're ill-equipped. Yep. Well, geez, we're ill-equipped to be parents in the first place. True. <laughs> yeah. Therefore, you know, helping people. So I think I'd love to see more of that in yeah. in school. Yeah, um, no, I, I like that. Oh. I like that because we could get away from it. Even if you were being bullied in school, you could get away from it and escape. Whereas if it's online, there's no escape. And I think that's that's hard. But uh, So tell me, a couple of minutes left, Phil. Oh, actually, we're just done, uh, up against the hour. So very quickly then, wanted to ask you if your house were burning down and you, uh, your family were safe, if you have any pets, they're safe. Of course, your phone and computer are safe. You time to run back in and rescue one item. What would it be? Oh gosh, I should probably say my wedding album, but that wouldn't be true. Nothing wrong with my wedding album, by the way. Again, it's, it's well known that I've got a collection of musical instruments that I, I can only play one tune on, and I think of all of them, my favorite is the saxophone. Well, wow. now I can play three tunes on the saxophone. Mm. So once I can play three tunes, I've kind of cracked it and I can move on to something else. Mm. But that might be the thing that I go back for, even if it's quite an annoyance to everyone else that lives in the house with me. And when I was, when I turned 50, uh, my two daughters bought this instrument for me and it's, it's fabulous. And I, I get great value out of it mm. for me personally, not for anyone else. So, uh, <laughs> and then I progress, I, they bought me a flute the following year. And I became Phil the Fluter. And <laughs> and then uh, I think last year I bought myself a, a clarinet and I'm struggling with that one at the moment. But I, again, as long as I can get a noise out of it and play a yeah. tune, I'm happy. I'm not looking for perfection or yeah. to to perform yeah. in, in any particular way. Yeah. Although I was at a gig on Paddy's Day there, an early, an early evening gig, a group called the Wednesday Gang who formed in Boyle's Pub in Slane over a number of years ago because the guy that owned it at the time was a musician and we went to see them and I was envious I was looking at the guitar a couple of guitarists and I was thinking yeah, I could probably do that and yeah. so I one day will get brave and go and join yeah. a, a small informal group where mistakes are much more accepted than not yeah I was thinking how you could combine your negotiation skills with your love of music if you got yourself a fiddle a violin you could probably negotiate yeah. anything by giving that up, using it as a sort of a, yeah. <laughs> as a white elephant. Yeah. A leverage. A leverage, uh, exactly. Leverage. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll give up my beloved violin, but I want this in return. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, Very yeah. good. Final question. So when your time on this planet is done and there's a book written about your life, what would you like the title of it to be? Or better say, a song written there, let's say, because of the music. A song written about your life, what would you like the song's title to be? Probably something along the lines of, it was fun, wasn't it? Yeah, I like that. As simple and profound in its own way. Phil Codd, thank you so much for being my guest on the podcast today. Paul, delighted to join you. Thanks very much for having me. Take care.